and thank you so much for joining us here at Quarto Kids Cast. I'm your host, Mel Shewitt, and today I'm joined by author and illustrator Flora DeLarghi of Rescuing Titanic, a true story of quiet bravery in the North Atlantic. You know, I'd really love for, for this book to really convey the sort of supportive and selfless nature of humans in, time of, in sort of times of crisis, um, and I suppose just of hope and doing the right thing. This exquisitely illustrated story of quiet bravery tells in rich detail how the little ship Carpathia saved 705 passengers of the Titanic from the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Rescuing Titanic is the debut book in the Hidden History series, as well as Flora DeLarghi's debut book, and it shows that a glimmer of hope can be found even in great tragedy, as well as that heroes are not always big and mighty, but can also be small and unassuming. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Flora DeLarghi, author of Rescuing Titanic. Hello, my name is Flora DeLarghi and I am the author of Rescuing Titanic. Hi Flora, I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. I, it's beautiful, the story has never been told before, so I want to know where you got the idea for Rescuing Titanic. And I believe you have a personal connection to the Titanic, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah. So thank you very much for having me. Um, well, I suppose I would say that I've sort of been aware of the story of Titanic from, from quite a young age. Um, I've lived in Belfast almost all of my life and Titanic was designed and built and launched here. So it's just really a big part of the city's history and its heritage. Um, the city itself is divided up into four quarters and one of the quarters is actually called the Titanic Quarter. And um, we have an amazing um, visitor attraction called Titanic Belfast, a Titanic themed hotel. And there's, you know, there's just Titanic everywhere, basically. So you sort of live and breathe. Wow. <laughs> you do live and breathe the history of the of the ship here. Um, but I also have um, a bit of a family connection to the ship in that my grandfather and great grandfather um, worked in the Belfast shipyards and actually just lived like almost a stone's throw away from the shipyard where the Titanic was built. So um, my, my grandfather was a naval architect for Titanic shipbuilder Harland and Wolf, and my great grandfather was an iron turner for, it was actually a rival shipbuilder called Workman Clark. And um, at the time Titanic was built, they employed like loads and loads of people in Belfast. I think it was something like 15,000 people in the city worked in the shipyard. Wow. So they were just a huge employer. Um, and yeah, so there's so many people who have a connection to the ship in the city. Um, but actually, despite all this, I knew very little about the story of Carpathia, um, I suppose, before beginning this project. And um, I knew, sort of knew a little bit that it had come to the aid of survivors of the Titanic. But I only really discovered the full extent of the role it played when I was in the, the sort of final stages of my master's in children's book illustration. I've been looking for a nonfiction subject for my final project. And um, I actually came across the story of Captain Rostrum and his crew um, on Twitter, of all places. Of all um, places. I, yeah, I know, it was a bit crazy. There was a really amazing Reddit post put up and it was just so moving. And I was just immediately drawn to the heroism, bravery of the actions of those aboard the Carpathia. And the more and more I learned about what the, what the captain and the crew achieved that night, you know, it was quite unbelievable. It was a, a really treacherous journey they had to take and sort of through this dense field of icebergs and the pitch black at a crazy speed. And I just I just really felt it would make a really wonderful children's book. So that's kind of where it all sort of kicked off from, really. I mean, it turns out you were right. It does make an amazing children's book. <laughs> yeah. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your research process? I have to assume it wasn't all based on Twitter, but that's how it started, which is pretty <laughs> yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, not quite. No, um, it was actually a really interesting process um, to research this book. Um, there's obviously a wealth of information available on the Titanic, um, just online and books and that sort of thing. And you know, living in Belfast, I'm really lucky to have access to so many amazing local resources. Um, obviously the Titanic Belfast Museum that I mentioned before, and even just being able to visit the dry docks where the Titanic was built just really helped give a, an amazing sense of the scale of the ship and, you know, what it might have been like to stand on that dock side and sort of wave, wave the ship away kind of yeah, thing. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the dummy book that I actually pitched to my editor, Lucy, was around 40 pages long and quite light on text. So I really had to go back to the drawing board and, and sort of think carefully about how I wanted to structure the narrative and what kind of non-fiction elements I wanted to include. Um, and I suppose I would say that this is my first book and um, the things that I sort of expected to find most difficult in terms of the research and planning were probably the most straightforward and vice versa in a way. Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I sort of thought, that, you know, working out the structure of the book would be quite a complicated process, um, but it, that really came together quite quickly. And um, I sort of decided early on that'd be quite dramatic to tell the story of the two ships in kind of parallel with each other and so sort of follow their individual timelines until they sort of intersect when Carpathia receives a distress call. Um, so that all came together quite quickly and was, and was sort of surprisingly one of the more straightforward aspects. But um, I suppose something that I hadn't really anticipated being a challenge was the process of, it sounds a bit mundane, but the process of fact-checking the sort of timeline of events. Um, one of the sort of more useful resources that I used um, were the, the transcripts from the British and American inquiries following the disasters. Um, and sort of many of the survivors of the Titanic, both the, the passengers and the crew, as well as the Carpathia's crew, just gave really crucial testimonies. And these allowed me to plot a so, sort of almost like you might say, like moment by moment account of what happened that night. Um, but the challenge was that some of these accounts just didn't always knit together in the way that you sort of expected. And there were some inconsistencies, um, which is, I suppose, understandable because sure. you know, these, these people weren't writing a diary as things happened and logging the events as they happened. You know, they weren't, you know, they were sort of relying on their memories, really, and recollections sort of. And that didn't, of course, really tell a complete story from beginning to end. Um, and sort of no one on board was really able to give a sort of con a comprehensive timeline. So I suppose for me, the challenge was just trying to knit all these viewpoints together and sort of create a sort of consistent and coherent storyline. Um, and I really wanted to make this as accurate as possible because, you know, as you'll see in the book, there's a little clock on each page and I really wanted those timings to be sort of really as accurate as possible and, and give a real clear picture of the events as they unfolded. But um, yeah, no, I would say like the, these first-hand testimonies just really gave me an incredible insight into the thoughts and feelings of those on board. You know, Captain Rostrans, um, he was the, the captain of the Carpathia. His autobiography was just incredibly useful and it gave me just a huge sense of the emotions, the range of emotions he felt when the distress call came through. Um, he talks about this moment that um, obviously Harold Cottam, who was the radio officer and first officer Dean, they burst into his cabin and his first reaction was something like, you know, who are these cheeky beggars coming into my cabin without knocking, you know, because obviously there's these levels of- It's an emergency. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, it was just nice, like these like little insights like that were just so useful for getting a feel of 
of how they would have reacted. And he sort of said, you know, time sort of slowed down. And, you know, when when the news came through and he had to actually like double check to make sure he'd heard it correctly. And it was just like just little things like that were really, really fascinating to learn about and really helped, you know, add to the drama of the story and help me inject that into my story. Was there anything so surprising that you didn't see it coming? Um, I, I don't think there's anything that surprising. I think one of the the most the nicest things really about the research was just the level of compassion that Carpathia's um, passengers and crew had for the survivors when they came on board the ship. You know, they they gave up their cabins, they sort of bunked in with other people. They gave up their clothes and there was actually, I think there was even a couple on board who were like honeymooning on the Carpathia and they gave up their cabin to the, obviously the survivors and didn't actually didn't want them to know that, you know, they were on their honeymoon in case it oh made them gosh. feel bad. <laughs> yeah, they were just, just so compassionate and so, um, so caring and they, they, you know, spoke at length with, with the survivors because I think the survivors really did need to, to sort of, to grieve and speak and just um, you know talk about their experiences and you know the the, the sort of passengers of Carpathia were there to do that with them, which is just so lovely. Looking to stay up to date on everything Quarto Kids has to offer? Sign up to receive our e-newsletters, and we'll stay in touch with upcoming books, creator interviews, educator guides, and more. Sign up to stay in touch at quartonose.com forward slash r forward slash educator newsletter. That's Q-U-A-R-T-O-K-N-O-W-S dot com forward slash R forward slash educator newsletter. That's amazing. I mean, there were 705 passengers that were saved. So That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it is incredible. And, um, you know, I think whenever they were preparing, they were obviously traveling to, to the spot where the Titanic was had, had sunk. They, they were expecting to pick up everyone. You know, this would have been something like 1,300 passengers of the Titanic and 900 crew. So I can't, I just can't imagine what that must have felt like knowing, you know, the Carpathia was quite a small ship. It was a bit of a workhorse of a ship. It was comfortable, but they weren't really designed. They had sort of had, they were mainly designed for second and third class passengers and had a bit of a refit a little bit later on in its life um, for first class passengers. But it, I mean, it wasn't a flashy ship. And um, I think I'm sure it must have been crazy to to think that you were going to pick up all these passengers from the most luxurious, biggest ship you know ever yeah. to have been launched. So it must have been a, a very a very strange experience for the for the crew as they made those preparations. I can only imagine. So aside from the the history and the story itself, what would you say is the biggest takeaway that you hope readers are going to get from this story? Um, I just think it would be really brilliant if the book was able to encourage children to learn about, you know, different historical events that they might be interested in from different perspectives. And I suppose when people think of Titanic, you know, it, it has become a bit of a byword for tragedy, for suffering, for sort of human misjudgment in a way. And it's taken on a bit of a mythical quality. It's obviously the the biggest, most luxurious ship of the day that crashed into an iceberg on its first journey, you know, carrying some of the, I suppose some of the most wealthy and famous people in the world. You know, these were the celebrities of the day on the Titanic. And I, I suppose there's probably an element of pride before, you know, coming before a fall kind of thing, like kind of pushing yourself beyond what you're capable of. And, you know, I, but th through this book, I just really wanted to show 
a different side to that narrative. Um, I suppose, you know, the role that the crew and the passengers of the Carpathia played in the story of Titanic just illustrates an almost antithesis to those sort of themes of pride and, and I suppose of excess and, and misjudgment. It, I, you know, I'd really love for, for this book to really convey the sort of supportive and selfless nature of humans in time of, in sort of times of crisis. Um, and I suppose just of hope and doing the right thing. You know, they had the ship, like the crew and the, and the captain had a responsibility to, I suppose, respond to the stress calls, but it, it didn't have a responsibility to put itself in such danger by rushing through this dense field of, of ice in the dark at a speed that it couldn't really maintain for long, you know. So it's, I would just love for, for people to really see that side of it, that it's a story of compassion of passengers who gave up their cabins and their clothes and doing quietly doing the right thing. You're giving me chills. Oh, <laughs> thanks um, very much. <laughs> let's switch to, I love this story, but let's switch to my personal favorite part of this book, which is the illustrations, because I oh, love sure. them. Can you tell us about how you made the illustrations and sort of about your illustration process in general? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I, I create all my illustrations by hand. Um, I, you know, I'd love to be able to, to work digitally at some point in the future, but at the moment, I'd, I just wouldn't have the skills to do that. But um, no, I enjoy working with different um, sort of mediums. I, for this book, I would have used a mixture of watercolor, gouache and um, pastels and pencils and that sort of thing. And then once I finished a piece of artwork, I'll then scan it into Photoshop and correct any mistakes or sort of tweak the level slightly or, or sort of little things like that. But I sort of like the unpredictability of using traditional materials. And, and it can. I think I'm not sure that this if this happens when you work digitally or not, but sometimes you can make a mistake and think, oh, actually, I really like how that looked and it can play into how you want the illustrations to look. So I don't know how easily I would be able to achieve those sort of happy accidents you know, if I were using digital media, but yeah, I, I just, I, you know, I suppose I would say like the, the really early stages of the project where you can sort of experiment with materials and play around with mark making and textures, like that's what I really enjoy. Like that's probably the most enjoyable part of the process for me. It sort of takes me back to being on the children's book illustration MA that I did um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, just playing with visual language without the pressure of creating that sort of perfect final piece um but um and that is I think that's probably in terms of illustrating that's what I find most difficult you know when you sit down in front of that blank piece of paper and you know your brain is saying right this has to be perfect and it's sometimes quite difficult to overcome <laughs> but yeah it's a bit of a constant struggle when when you're uh <laughs> when you're an illustrator for, I'm sure for most people and when you're your own harshest critic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's particularly difficult. <laughs> well, you get a chance to do it sort of all over again, because this is actually the first of a series. Do you want to tell us about the next book in the That's right. series? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm currently working on, um, I suppose, my follow-up to, to Rescuing Titanic, which is part of the Hidden History series. And I'm actually working on a story at the minute about a few women who were involved in the Klondike Gold Rush at the turn of the century. Um, and yeah, they're just they're just incredible women who managed to make a success story of working in this incredible environment in the gold rush, you know, which is a very male dominated sort of environment. And it's just been a really wonderful experience to delve into this sort of lesser known side of, of history and, and learn about these these incredible women. But um, I, I have to say I'm in the very early stages, so there's um, I, I'm sure it will go through a lot of changes. But at the moment, <laughs> you know, that's um, that's what I'm working on. It's, it's just been really fascinating. And how did you find that story? So I, 
as a teen, I'm going to reveal how uncool I am. <laughs> as a teenager, <laughs> as a teenager, I really loved um, like old silent films, like Charlie Chaplin and like Buster Keaton films. And Charlie Chaplin did this film called. It's one of his um, most famous films. It's called The Gold Rush, and it's, it's sort of based in the Klondike. Um, I've just really responded to the images, and it's always been in the back of my mind. And I just always wanted to, wanted to sort of look into what story might come out of that and um yeah i i came across these images of um it's one of the the passes through to the gold fields um in in the klondike and it's this incredible sort of mountain scale that people have to pass and it's just literally like on almost horizontal line of of men and women passing up this mountainside and i just it just really struck me and i just always wanted to know more about like who these people were that were you know coming from all walks of life to kind of make their fortune I suppose in the gold rush and um, I just yeah once I started um, looking into the story I just came across all these amazing women and I just thought oh they would they would be they would sort of form a really amazing book so yeah yeah that's, that's a great <laughs> twist on that story and I'm just wondering what part of that makes you uncool you sound very cool to me <laughs> I don't think there's many teenagers watching side of films <laughs> Well, they should be. And I am yeah. sure the, I'm sure you're actually wrong. I'm bet you there's a lot of people well, out there. Well, I hope that it'd be nice to know there'd be other, there's others <laughs> out there. <laughs> Especially now that we're all trapped at home and. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you parents to can't stand to listen to things anymore. <laughs> yeah. Just stick a few silent films on, you know. And exactly. That'll, that'll entertain <laughs> You'll be entertained. Absolutely. Well, this has been such a delight, Flora. And before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you one more question. And that is, what makes you love a book? What brings you back to a book time and time again? What pulls you in? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, I think of the books that I sort of come back to, um, you know, as a teenager, I loved books like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights and um, like Catcher in the Rye. And I think it's books like that, that kind of, you know, where you've got these authentic, relatable characters um, who are complicated and just really jump off the page in front of you. Like these are the books that I still find myself today, like picking up and flicking and reading a chapter of. And I don't know, there's an, there's supposed to be an element of familiarity with them that are just, you know, they're the books that kind of I just enjoy going back to and I suppose maybe more thinking more in terms of um, children's illustration and illustrative nonfiction. I suppose it's, it's usually I find it's the pictures and the visuals that will draw me in first into a book. Um, I just really love atmosphere and illustration and, and um, you know things that sometimes are a little bit strange a little bit surprising and otherworldly maybe um, but whenever you know illustrations work in harmony together with words I just think it's a really magical thing and um, I suppose with, with non-fiction books I'm just really drawn to to ones that can inspire you to learn more about you know a particular topic or that will spark a new interest in something for you you know those are the those are the really special books in my opinion. I completely agree especially as I am an illustration visual person as well so <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Flora. I can't wait for everybody to see this book. It's getting amazing reviews. It's got a starred review. It's just doing super well and it hasn't even come out yet. So I'm excited for people to check it out. Thank you very much, Mel. It's been really lovely just to chat with you today. Thank you so much for listening to our chat with Flora DeLarghi. Rescuing Titanic, a true story of quiet bravery in the North Atlantic, is available online and in bookstores and libraries worldwide September 7th. 
We'd love to see you subscribe to Cardo Kids Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find all available episodes at anchor.fm slash Cast. And hey, if you're enjoying Cardo Kids Cast, we'd be grateful if you left a review so others can hear about it too. Special thanks to Scott Holmes for our theme music, Steve Roth for his promotional vocal stylings, Flora DeLarge for stopping by to talk to us, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.